Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store if you feel inclined. Make sure to check it out. Our guest today is Dr. Neil Hammerschlag. Dr. Hammerschlag is a scientist whose work focuses primarily on the ecology and conservation biology of marine top predators, notably including sharks, in the face of the ever-changing climate and environmental developments across the globe. Dr. Hammerschlag investigates biophysical drivers and ecosystem impacts of large shark movements in response to urbanization and overfishing, and he has worked everywhere from Florida and the Bahamas to South Africa and the Galapagos Islands. When not tagging sharks and working on other facets of marine research, Dr. Hammerschlag enjoys science communication and outreach, fostering diversity in the fields of science, engineering, technology, and mathematics, photography, ice hockey, and finally music, especially Pearl Jam. Suitably for an associate research professor and director of shark research and conservation at the University of Miami for 13 years, Dr. Hammerschlag's favorite color is orange, and he currently serves as an investigator with the Marine Biodiversity Observation Network of South Florida. As a face of National Geographic Shark Fest, as well as the Discovery Channel's widely popular Shark Week, we're very lucky to have Dr. Hammerschlag with us today. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hammerschlag, and thank you for taking the time to join me. It's wonderful to have you as a guest and be able to pick your brain about sharks and marine management. Sounds great. So I'm super interested in a paper to get right into questions from 2012 that you're on that looks at cyanobacterial neurotoxin BMAA in shark fins. It must have been first so cool to work with professionals from the Department of Neurology at the Miller School of Medicine. I'm wondering if you can brief our listeners on bioaccumulating toxins and touch on your findings from this paper, especially in regard to shark fin soup and other culinary delicacies that involve shark meat around the world. Is there a danger to humans who consume shark meat based on this? Thanks. Great question. Um, so in short, yes, the, the results of the study were pretty amazing in that they suggest that uh, shark meat, shark fins can be toxic to consumers. Um, and it was linked to essentially they, there is a compound, a chemical compound called BMAA. That's, the, that's kind of the abbreviation for a big fancy word, but essentially uh, it has been linked to the development of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's, you know, these terrible diseases for which there's no cure. And essentially, the, the source of all of this are these algal blooms that are coming from pollution. And essentially, these algae, these are cyanobacteria that have this toxin and it kind of, you know, by being uh, uptaken by small organisms and then eaten by bigger organisms and eaten by bigger organisms and then finally eaten by the biggest like sharks it actually gets accumulated in the tissues and it gets accumulated even on the brain what it, what this means is that if you consume it you're gonna you're essentially ingesting those toxins and it and it can accumulate in your own tissues and if you get too much bmaa on the brain that can lead to these neurological diseases and if you have like you know if you have a, a you know a slice of shark meat, it doesn't mean you're going to ha start having that disease right away. It's very much like smoking, right? It has to do with how much you smoke and every person has, you know, might smoke uh, more, you're going to be more prone to it. But at the same time, like every person has their own like sensitivity to much how much like smoking might turn into like 
you know, cancer or something. Right. So is it sort of then similar to say mercury in striped bass, where if you kind of mitigate your routine consumption, then you can do so safely and it's not necessarily going to lead to illness? Or would you suggest not eating shark meat based on what's happening in the environment right now? Um, that's a great question. And I don't know entirely the answer, but what I can say, it accumulates. So the more you the the more you eat, the more you're going to have. And the same thing, like for some people, they're going to have different like genetic predisposition to how much. So I can't say to one person, like limit your consumption to, you know, one shark steak a week. Um, I think because w- what it does suggest is that, you know, you're going to have this, this, you know, essentially... Uh, you can get BMA in your system, on your brain. And obviously, the more you eat, the more susceptible you're going to be to those diseases. But it, there's also going to be people. My best, The best way to avoid it is obviously reducing consumption of, of shark products, for sure. Certainly. Thank you. Along with Dr. David Schiffman, I've seen that you have authored papers called Preferred Conservation Policies of Shark Researchers and Shark Conservation and Management Policy, a Review and Primer for Non-Specialists. And I think it's awesome that your passion for science communication is sort of overlapping here with your publications. And I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a bit about what you folks learned first about public perception of current conservation policy, and maybe second, where you think regional policy needs to go in the near future in order to be most effective. Yeah, so in this this paper, it was a really interesting paper and study, we surveyed scientists that study sharks and rays and asked them for their opinions about different types of policies. And generally, what we found, there's a support for a lot of different policies, and that generally people were more comfortable and familiar with the ones, the traditional kind of fisheries policies, catch limits, quotas, versus, you know, I would say some of the more, uh, the newer ones that are being proposed, kind of like fin bans. Not to say that one is different, is necessarily better than the other. And in fact, I think one of the big take-home messages is that there's no really silver bullet, you know, policy that is one size fits all in all circumstances. And so that it's really good to have a number of different policies that are um, best suited for a given situation. Thank you for that. So sort of along the same vein of public engagement and science communication, a number of groups like OSEARCH and other, I guess, sort of organizations are growing in popularity with their shark tracking apps and naming animals they tag and sort of giving that personification uh, to something that has previously been very uh, terrifying, like Jaws and the Meg and so on. So I'm curious as to whether you think that having this data openly accessible and showing people that sharks are here in their own backyards is sort of raising levels of concern for these species surrounding the threat of endangerment and extirpation. And I know we sort of touched on this with the last question, the sort of growing um, public interest in conservation measures, but I'm curious as to your insight on this. I think it's a good thing. I think it not only raises awareness, but it also raises a lot of curiosity. And I think, you know, fear often also turns to fascination. And so I think, you know, the more attention we can get for the plight of sharks, but also just how cool they are and that they're around here, um, you know, that essentially if there's an ocean, there's likely possibly a shark there. And so I think that, you know, generates a lot of public interest. I've heard some of the researchers at OSEARCH say they're sort of aiming to pull back the curtain, which I thought was really cool because, as you say, it's not as if sharks had not previously existed here. But I think for a second there was sort of a fear or a realization that, oh, my goodness, like they're everywhere. Like I can never go swimming again. But now there's sort of that fascination with, oh, look, I can send the location of this shark with this name to my friend. And I'm like, oh, this one's near you. Like this one's coming to visit me. This is so cool. So I think there's an interesting 
dimension to public engagement that's associated with that. And they have Twitter accounts and it's kind of funny, but it's really cool. Yeah. So if I'm correct, I think 2022 marked your fifth consecutive year of appearing on Discovery Channel Shark Week. And I have to give a shout out to my dad with this question because we watch every year. And I think a lot of my own passion for shark science and conservation comes from learning about how misunderstood these animals can be. So I'm wondering if working with public figures like Shaquille O'Neal and the YouTube group Dude Perfect was sort of like an outside of the box move to reach perhaps a wider demographic and maybe ideally propagate sort of, as we've been discussing that international interest of sharks where fear sort of turns into fascination. Yeah, I mean, that for me was really stepping out of my comfort zone because normally the stuff that I've done has been really more science-driven, kind of your classical like adventure exploration story into sharks that's based on on research. And working with the celebrities there, I also have done work with um, Michael Phelps on Shark Week and um, the group from Shark Tank and Rob Gonkowski. Um, and a few others. And, you know, it was, you know, that I think definitely draws in the public. I mean, that's, you know, these people are influencers. And I think if you can take them and bring them, you know, to see sharks and they bring with their following that might like them, but not necessarily sharks, I don't think too much about sharks and engage that public, you know, that's an opportunity to, you know, uh, to increase exposure for kind of the both the wonders of sharks and plights facing sharks. For sure. That's an interesting collaboration. It's really cool. So I guess in opposition to what we've been discussing so far, I'm curious about your opinions on finding a balance between research and conservation and sort of har- harmful, excuse me, ecotourism and animal harassment. So I know there's been some controversy surrounding figures like Ocean Ramsey and individuals associated with the TV show Jackass for provocation and such. And as a diver who's frequented waters populated with sharks, I'm interested in your thoughts on the differentiation between ethically and safely interacting with these animals as opposed to putting yourself as well as sharks in danger. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I think what it comes down to is we have to realize that sharks are predators and i think there's a line between saying that you know these animals are mindless killers and then also the other side is saying that you know they're these puppy dogs that you know right want to be loved right i think both are inaccurate and i think what we really need to do is respect them and think about treating them with with respect in whatever you do and realizing that these are wild animals they're unpredictable they're not out there to get you but they do have the equipment to hurt you if you don't respect them and, you know, kind of give them space and act in a responsible way. And, you know, I think different situations are going to, you know, are, are different. And I think, um, you know, ideally, as long as you're going into that scenario and just continue to, to share and propagate the truth, which that these animals are predators they deserve to be protected but also respected um but not they're not mindless killers but they're you know they're also you know they're not the same thing as your your pet dog of course i've heard it said that when we are in the ocean like humans are visiting their home and i think that's a cool that sort of i think resonates with what you said i think that's a cool way to consider it So moving now a bit more toward the fisheries and management side of things, which is predominantly my interest, I want to ask you about sustainable shark fisheries. 
So some folks, including myself at one time when I was younger and more naive, believe that all shark fisheries are bad for the environment and unsustainable, bad for sharks. However, recognizing the socioeconomic, cultural, and geographic importance of shark fisheries for food security and livelihood around the world, I'm wondering if you can shed some light on quote-unquote sustainable shark fisheries and what that might mean. This is a controversial topic, and I think an important one. And I generally believe that having sustainable shark fisheries is very challenging. And I think that, you know, on maybe paper, that can work. But I think practically, that can be very challenging to actually happen. Uh, And many fisheries aren't sustainable. And I think we have to be very careful when we talk about sustainable shark fisheries, because you need so much information to manage to be able to manage the shark sustainably. And there are a lot, you know, there's a lot we don't know about their biology and life history. And, you know, we're, you know, you really have to have really good accurate information on, for example, life history traits, which for some species we don't know and we're estimating. And for other species, what we're finding is can vary by area or by year. You know, some shark species, you know, like just working off the coast of Florida on the East coast of Florida, they might reproduce every year and on the West coast of Florida, every two years. And sometimes they take a year off. That makes a very big difference in, in the output. You know, the North Atlantic Mako shark was thought to be sustainable fishery for a long time. Uh, And then, but that was based on, you know, an estimated um, age of maturity of much younger than what it was. And, and all of a sudden now we're seeing that this species is completely imperiled and in a lot of trouble in the North Atlantic. I mean, this is the the North Atlantic shortfin mako shark is a disaster where, you know, just a few years ago, this was thought to be maybe a bright spot for sustainable shark fisheries. And I think we just lack the information uh, to be able to, to, really know what was going on. So I think we have to be very careful. Um, And yes, I do think that, you know, food security is something that should be considered. But when you're talking about species that, you know, certain sharks that take very long to reproduce, you know, uh, late age of sector maturity, relatively few offspring, only reproduce every few years, you know, how likely, you know, how, I, I guess, you know, in terms of having a reliable livelihood, like, relying on on those types of species is is probably not as best of a you know bet as to species that have a much bigger reproductive output uh in the long term and i think you know we also have to consider what the the ecosystem consequences of that is because it might not be directly obvious as the economic benefit of selling shark meat but in turn what it might mean for the ecosystem and so i generally when it comes to sustainable shark fisheries and much more on the side of being precautionary and to say, you know, to kind of assume no fishery until you can kind of have the evidence to say that it could be done sustainably um, versus, okay, let's fish until we can show that, you know, it is or isn't sustainable. And, you know, I think we have to be very careful. And right now, more and more data is showing that, you know, and almost, you know, monthly coming out showing that, uh, sharks are among the most threatened vertebrates on the planet and, you know, are, are at high risk of extinction, only second to amphibians. So I think we have to be very careful when talking about sustainable shark fisheries, certainly at a wide scale, because, you know, that can go wrong very quickly, especially if the data, you know, if people start removing animals outside of scientific limits or misreport. I've been involved in a lot of scenarios where the data coming in suggests that it can be 
sustainable based on what's being reported in by fisheries, but sometimes there's a lot of misreporting that's going on. Something that's certainly possible in theory and practice, it's definitely a lot more difficult and, you know, an area that, that needs obviously a lot of thought. So a lot of your work, as briefly mentioned earlier, focuses also on the impacts of climate and other environmental changes on apex predators like sharks. I'm wondering if you can share some of the findings from a paper that you published last year that detailed specifically the impact of rising ocean temperatures on sharks around the world and what this means for their future. Yeah, so this was a really exciting but also super alarming study um, where, you know, we focused on tiger sharks in the western North Atlantic. And I'd been tracking tiger sharks via satellites for the last 10 years, looking at how their movements were responding to water temperatures. And, you know, the last decade was the hottest on record in an area of the world, western North Atlantic, that's warming at a very high rate, higher than most of the rest of the planet. And so it offered a really interesting opportunity to track movements in response to ocean warming. But we also obtained data on shark catch rates over the last 40 years along uh, the U.S. eastern seaboard and looking to see uh, decadal scale trends and catches in relation to water temperatures as well. And what the results of both types of data sets really start to show is that movements of tiger sharks influence highly by uh, water temperatures and, and essentially that uh, anomalously high water temperatures and both, you know, from short term, like heat waves or long term kind of ocean warming from climate change, we're finding we're driving changes to not only where these sharks were being found, but also the timing of their movements. So we found that tiger shark migrations are extending far, further north towards the poles and also occurring earlier in the year. So they're now migrating north along their north-south migrations. They're now migrating earlier in the year because it, the waters are getting warmer up north earlier in the year. And as a result, both changes to the timing and location of, of their migrations was actually causing mismatches with how much time they were spending within areas that were where um, longline fishing was excluded. So what was happening is that historically these tiger sharks were spending a lot of time in areas that were big big zones where they were either um, yearly or time area closures to commercial longline fishing, bottom longlining and pelagic longlining. The sharks were there because they have preferred food, preferred temperatures. These protected areas weren't put in place for the tiger sharks. They were just benefiting from it, from, from just spending time there. But due to climate-driven changes to their, their migration patterns, they're actually significantly less overlap in terms of how long they're spending in these areas, now essentially exposing them to these commercial longline fisheries. So it sounds like these are some pretty drastic changes that sharks are facing. And I'm wondering now if this is sort of driving, you think, changes to baseline behaviors that scientists have sort of accepted as typical of different species or characteristic of sharks. And if you think that moving forward, if they continue to experience such unprecedented changes, if researchers will almost have to relearn or I guess reestablish sort of hallmark characteristics and behaviors of different species based on the changes they've been forced to make in their own behaviors due to environmental factors like climate. I think I'm a behavioral ecologist and, um, you know, one of the goals is of the type of research I do and other people is to look at how these animals respond to current conditions and be able to predict how they're going to respond in the future. Right. So it's hopeful that by studying them now and how they're responding to changes in the environment, we can kind of forecast in the future 
um, what their behavioral responses might be. Thank you. And I'm interested by something that you said a couple of questions ago regarding how research can be similarly exciting, but also alarming at the same time. And I'm just wondering how doing the work that you do and seeing, as you say, plight of different species that you care profoundly about and also that humanity should collectively care profoundly about, how you're able to keep hope seeing everything that's happening to the world right now. And as you said, kind of predicting and forecasting uh, future responses of different species. So I'm just wondering how you sort of navigate doing this very necessary work, but also sometimes very like heavy work and how you kind of keep hope in the face of that. You know, there's a lot of doom and gloom and a lot of doom and gloom stories that come out when it comes to ocean conservation and certainly shark conservation. But I am like super optimistic and super hopeful because Never before in the history of the earth have there been this many people that are caring about the oceans, this many people who, you know, care about sharks, to care about sea creatures, and this many people are actually putting in place legislation. There's never been a time in history that we've had this much information and that we actually have the knowledge now to make a difference. And I think, you know, it, it's super exciting time because there are are a lot of conservation measures that are being put in place. There are a lot of policies that have had success. I mean, success is going to be slow, but it, I mean, we know how to do it. We have the tools to do it. And there's never been so many people in the world that are excited and empowered and knowledgeable enough and engaged enough to do it. And we're living in that time. That 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 was not the case 50 years ago. I like that perspective. Thank you for that. I'll try to hang on to that. And I always make sure to ask my guests for both the sake of myself as a young researcher sort of breaking into this field and also for listeners who might be in a similar situation. Do you have any advice for students or other folks who are interested in getting into shark science? Yeah, I would say, you know, become knowledgeable and focus on this, like shark science is a super broad topic. And I think, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's certainly like a shiny one that you see on TV and I think you really, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm interested, I really am interested in sharks. Uh, I want to study them. I want to support shark conservation. So I, I want to get into science. And I think, you know, science is just one way to be involved with sharks. It's only, it's one way to support conservation. Equally important to science is communication, outreach, public engagement. You know, you can get involved with sharks through it doesn't have to just be science. It could be through, you know, writing books, documentaries, going into policy, working for government, working for NGOs, right? Campaigns you can do it through art, through literature, advertising. Mm. Um, you know, you can work in an aquarium. You know, there's there's so many avenues. And then within science, if you want, if you are into shark science, there's there, science is there. It's so broad, right? There's physiology, immunology, biology, ecology, there's microbiology, genetics. I mean, it goes on and on. So you really have to figure out what interests you from the science side. Sharks are interesting, no doubt about it. They're fascinating. And I see why people want to be engaged in a science that works with sharks. But what type of science? You have to figure out what is it about science that you like. If it wasn't sharks, if you were you know, studying ants, what, what if you just substitute ants for sharks. What type of science would you be interested in? Was it physiology? Is it behavior? Is it ecology? What is it? And then try to connect those two. And then I would say is build a skill set. Because, um, you know, I think it's really amazing to, to have a certain skill that can be applied to studying a specific problem. 
what is it about sharks that interests you? What is the problem? What is the question you have? And what what set of tools can you have in your tool belt to try to address those questions? And I think those are types of, of things that people should be thinking about when going into that field. Thank you. That's wonderful advice. So as for your own career, I believe you're now based in Mi'kmaq Key or Nova Scotia, which is the unceded and traditional territory of the Mi'kmaq people. What is in store for you in terms of science, research, and sharks in the future? Hopefully a lot. Um, so I um, am really interested in this area. It's an area under dynamic change from you know the environment, uh, growing population and urbanization. And for me, that opens up a lot of questions about, you know, how different species of sharks are going to respond behaviorally and what that means for the environment. Um, I'm interested in, in right now, I, I'm going to be working um, on the white shark and particularly trying to get an understanding of getting an idea of monitoring, just trying to understand, you know, what is the relative abundance, spatially, temporally over the time, age, sex structure, um, looking at characteristics of their life history. Are they are individuals pregnant? Are um, what proportion of the population is juvenile pregnant? What you know? How does their, their genetic structure makeup look like? And um, also looking at their movements in response to ocean warming and. Uh, urbanization, and then what do, what does that mean for the rest of the environment, the other shark species, the other species of the environment? And so I'm going to be doing that under a research permit, but in addition to doing the science, uh, it's going to have a big public outreach and engagement uh, part. And so we are going to invite uh, the public to join those trips as citizens, citizen scientists and ecotourists to um go out and view sharks to cage dive with sharks. And in doing so, um, you know, they will help fund the research uh, as well as contribute to the research where their photographs are going to be used to build a, a database of different individuals in the area to help catalog the individuals. And it's our hope that not only that this work will support uh, the conservation of great white sharks in Atlantic Canada, uh, particularly Nova Scotia, not only by the science we generate, but by the engagement of the public where they can see that these sharks are more valuable alive than dead, uh, that there are these amazing animals, um, you know, by engaging the public and actually seeing them in the wild and developing, you know, a, a fascination and love and appreciation for these animals and hopefully fostering or the, the locals to feel really proud that they have white sharks in the area. You know, this isn't, the white sharks are much more now frequent to the area than they were historically. This is certainly a new phenomenon. So it's not only to understand that phenomenon, but I think to make people really engaged and and uh, excited and proud of of having white sharks here. So please check out um, Atlantic Shark Expeditions, Atlantic Shark Expeditions, and we have a new website, uh, AtlanticSharkExp.com and people can sign up to join a trip to come out and see the white sharks and contribute to citizen science. So my final question may be the most difficult. I'm not sure. It's about music. So do you have a favorite Pearl Jam song and what is it? If so, oh, that's so tough. That is really the toughest question of the day. I don't know. I'll go with, how about I go with album? I like my favorite Pearl Jam album is Yield. 
and yeah, it's their fifth album that came out, came out in 1998. And uh, yeah, I just love it from top to bottom. It's something that I can play all the time and never get tired of it. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. So the toughest part is over. You've successfully run the gauntlet of my questions. And now we get to hear your final five. So this is a group of five final questions that each guest who joins us here on the Fisheries Pod get asked. So the first one is, what is your favorite fish? My favorite fish is a tiger shark. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? Probably one of them is definitely doing, um, you know, the first in situ in the field uh, ultrasound on a wild shark and seeing that uh, they are pregnant and and looking into it, the, the ultrasound, seeing, you know, small baby sharks looking back at you in their teeth. That was pretty incredible. That sounds like an amazing experience. I love asking people this question because it seems like they are all already doing it. But what is your dream job? Um, my dream job? I mean, I would love to be a musician. Um, I just have no musical ability. I think it would be really cool to be a rock star and go up on stage and play, you know, guitar and sing a song, maybe get recruited at, into Pearl Jam if they, they need someone else. But unfortunately, that's not in the cards for me. I have a terrible voice, uh, completely tone deaf, no rhythm. And uh, yeah, I can't really play guitar. <laughs> Thank you. If money was not an issue, what is a project that you would love to work on? I approach every project like money's not an issue. I, you know, and uh, so I think that, you know, what I'm doing now, I think um, creativity, I love discovery and I love engaging the public and um, I love sharks. So I try to do what I can to spend time in nature with sharks um, to do science and engage the public. And so as long as I'm doing that, I'm pretty happy. That's awesome. So finally, if there was one point or principle that you would like listeners to take away from hearing you speak today, what would that be? So I think from a science point of view, I would say that um, there's still a lot to learn. And I think we need to, again, respect sharks, but also, um, you know, we need to generate more accurate data um, and continue to monitor how to changes to these animals uh, their abundance and their behavior over time. And then from more of the the outreach kind of career advice questions that you've been asking me, I would say, you know, follow your passion, um, you know, and do your homework. I think it's very easy to, to find something you like and kind of just cursory kind of look at things that are really shiny about it. But, you know, you got to kind of dig deep and look under the cover and really educate yourself on that topic. Um, I think that's really important as well and, and become informed and, you know, be passionate about it and follow that passion. Well, Dr. Hammerschlag, thank you for hopping on the podcast with me today. It was a pleasure to hear you speak about your field and all the amazing projects that you've worked on. I'm sure our listeners will be just as thrilled as I was coming into this. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, how should they go about doing so? I think the best thing is to um, first follow me on social media. So uh, at Dr. Neil Hammer, at Dr. Neil Hammer is my uh, handle. And then obviously check out Atlantic Shark Expeditions as well. Thank you. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email through feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com.
Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some of our Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. My name is Reed Sutherland, and thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. Remember, be passionate.